How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Got here, Focus Wire and Mozio's podcast about innovation in travel and transportation. Today we're joined by Steve Hafner. Steve is the CEO of Kayak, which he founded along with Paul English in 2003. Uh, before Kayak, he was the EVP and on the founding team of Orbitz. Kayak was acquired in 2013 by the Booking Group, uh, where Steve continues to lead Kayak, Open Table, Momondo, and several other travel brands. Thanks for coming, Steve. Hey, David. Thanks for the, and Kevin, for that matter. Thanks for the uh, opportunity. Of course. So we always like to uh, start these with the same question, which is to ask uh, you to explain how you got here. Well, I think you reached out to my media team and uh, invited me on the show, but I'm just being facetious. <laughs> oh, uh, they actually reached out to us. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Set the record straight, but go on. <laughs> uh, I get the case, sense this is the way it's going to go, this one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have some fun. No, I, okay. look, I, I've been in the travel business for a long time. I helped start a company called Orbitz. Um, back in the day, gosh, over 20 years ago. And I, at the time I was working for a uh, PowerPoint shop called Boston Consulting Group. And we had been retained by a group of airlines right after the Expedia IPO to try to come up with a, an answer to it. And worked there for a bit. That, that project eventually turned into Orbitz, um, where you know I was there for four years, watched it grow from like six people to 1600. And it was really successful. And then we, we took it public. Uh, two weeks after we took it public, I quit and started Kayak, and I've been here ever since. And the uh, the insight that differentiated Kayak from Orbitz is, while I was at Orbitz, we were a store, so we would only show you the, the airlines and hotels that we could sell you, because that's how we made money. Uh, and as a result, half the people were going directly to, to other sites to book. And I just thought, we, sh- we could do it better if we were a search engine and not a store. And that, that turned into Kayak. So that's a short story. I think that's the shortest answer I've ever heard from you, actually. That's terrific. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Okay, let's go right back. So how did you get involved specifically in the Orbitz thing? And how did that kind of all come together and you work with the team and figure out your role there? Because you were... You- uh, SVP of uh, something or other, right? Yeah, consumer travel, which at the at the time was ninety seven percent of what Orbitz did. You know, we had a small business travel operation, but it yeah. was you know inconsequential. Still is actually, but um, y- y- you know, I was working for uh, this management consultancy, BCG, putting these yeah. you know elaborate PowerPoint decks um, together that was just overpaid bad advice, and the the airlines wanted. Um, someone to help them with this, this e-commerce strategy. And they didn't want anyone from the travel business because uh, Continental was a, was a BCG client out of um, Houston. Uh, American was a BCG client out of Dallas. And then United was a BCG client out of Chicago. So they didn't want anybody from any of those three offices to be on the founding team of Orbitz because you know, they, they thought they'd be biased. So they picked me and a handful of other BCG folks to staff the project because we didn't know anything about what we were doing. And, and nonetheless, it still worked out. 
It says here on your LinkedIn page, you were one of the best PowerPoint monkeys on the staff at BCG. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I'm, I'm probably bragging when I shouldn't be. There were some really good monkeys on that staff. <laughs> okay. But that is your, that is your crowning moment if it's on your LinkedIn page, right? Just to, to quickly follow up on that, what's, what's interesting is that um, I think there's a lot of outsiders and uh, you know, Silicon Valley types who want to try to disrupt the travel industry and come in and don't really understand it. Obviously, that seemed to be an advantage for you guys. Uh, and then you were able to actually take that experience and then go to kayak and uh, go start kayak, excuse me, and, uh, and straddle the line between not getting so bogged down in industry minutia, um, but also having a fresh viewpoint. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, look, back when we started Orbitz uh, in 99, it was still okay to be an amateur, you know, because you weren't going head to head against anybody who knew anything because the internet was so new. Uh, but but I, I wouldn't recommend that today. But it, what it did teach me is the value of fresh eyes on a problem and that you're better off hiring athletes versus hiring experienced people. So, you know, it, it really informed how we've picked people to work at Kayak and, and our other brands. You know, we look for really smart, driven people who are enthusiastic and, and are problem solvers. Not that, hey, we're doing a flight business, so have you worked at an airline or another online travel agency or a GDS? No, you know, we'd, we'd rather go get someone who has a job offer from Google and Facebook and others and bring them onto the team. If I could just elaborate on that, it's funny. This is something I notice with uh, a lot of other travel startup founders. They end up spending one hundred or two hundred thousand dollars on a salesperson who has a bunch of check boxes by their name and all this experience, and the person doesn't know how to hustle or, or something like that. And I might be decimating our, our viewership here at the current moment by uh, saying this, but I agree with you. I think it's sometimes it's it's definitely better to focus on those uh, those athletes, people who have natural ability and can figure it out. I, I totally agree. I mean, there's there's a couple other things that, that are important, right? It's, it's the cultural fit and are these people good coaches as well instead of just being individual performers and some other stuff. But, uh, you know, overall, for your listeners who are budding entrepreneurs, talent really matters because it's not just about the idea because in the internet age, especially in technology, the idea itself can be replicated. It's the execution that matters and it's the talent that actually executes against the idea. So, you know, the first five hires are really critical. The next 10 hires that they pick should be even stronger than, than the initial five, et cetera, and, and on down the road. And the formation of Kayak then. We spoke to uh, Terry Jones on the podcast uh, about six or seven episodes ago. Yep. And he talked us through from his perspective how all that kind of came together. Um, how much of all that was be because you were at Orbitz and then you left to start Kayak fairly quickly, right? Um, I did how much of the planning was involved between the two and how did it all kind of come together and working with Terry and meeting him and just the coalition of everything coming together? Cause it's an unusual way of starting a company. It was built from within a VC outwards rather than a nascent idea in your garage. Right? Yeah. I mean, success has many uh, parents, right? So, and everyone has a slightly different view about it. So, you know, what, when I was at Orbitz, I was always, after we had built this thing, I was looking for something else to do. And I still wanted to stay in the travel business like so many of us who are in the travel business want to do is, is, is uh, recirculate, right? And uh, a good friend of mine, Joel Cutler, who was a partner at um, General Catalyst, which is uh, 
top tier East Coast VC. Actually, a global VC these days because they've, they've been so successful. It came to me and said, hey, Steve, we're thinking about making an investment in this company called Sidestep. If we do, would you like to come on board to be the founding CEO? And, and I said to him, actually, Sidestep's interesting, but it's just a little plug-in, a little browser that would launch when you visited a, an airline site or orbits and show you Southwest results, basically. And I said, you know, uh, Joel, in, instead of uh, writing a check for 40% um, and a big check at that, why don't you write a much smaller check and we can own 100%. And this is the product we need to build. It's not a plug-in for your browser, which, by the way, was Netscape at the time. Uh, <laughs> it was, let's, let's build a website uh, that, you know, was a destination in and of itself that people could go to and search all this stuff. And he thought that resonated. He brought in his good friend, Terry, uh, who I know because he was the CEO of Travelocity. Um, and he bounced the idea off of him. Terry said, that's a pretty good idea. Let's go ask another person. And that was uh, Greg Slingstad, who was, you know, uh, I think first CEO of Expedia or, or first COO and had yeah. been there for a long, long time. And he said, yeah, this is a pretty good idea. You know, the, the four of us are sitting around in, um, in Boston talking about it. And we're like, there's something here. So, you know, that was, that was the origin story, if you will. And then and it, the, uh, the how I met Paul English is, is a type of story in and of itself. Yeah, we'll we'll come to the uh, the to the, the the union with Paul uh, in a, in a while. I, I just think it's quite interesting in the, you know, they had, in some sense, a very small vision for investing in Sidestep, and you came along and said, no, 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 this is what we can do. Did they need much persuading? Do you think? It was a six-page PowerPoint deck, and that was enough. Okay. And you are the PowerPoint master as you learned at Boston Consulting Group, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I still have that deck somewhere. It's uh, it's in a really bad yellow background, but um, you know, again, it's, I think I said it earlier, great ideas are out there. Um, and having one site to search all the other travel sites was an idea that other people had had, um, but no one had actually executed against it. So it's the execution that matters. So what was the, um, what do you think was the hardest part of that execution? Just while we're on this theme before, I, I do want to get onto the Paul English thing in a minute, but what was the most difficult part in that really, really early phase once you'd persuaded Joel and the others to kind of go with your idea rather than the sidestep plug-in idea? Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the toughest part other than the plumbing, which is actually getting a company up and running, was actually getting commercial agreements with all these airlines and OTAs to, to play with us right to let us search their sites uh, and compete against them to get paid for the pleasure and then to actually have a business model where consumers found out about us and came back i mean you got to remember that we started kayak um, at a very different time than when we started orbits when we started orbits it was still the wild west on the internet you could raise a ton of capital you could go out market people you know have hundred million dollar tv ad campaigns etc in 2003 it wasn't the wild west anymore you know, you had Expedia, Travelocity, and Orbitz as the big three in the U.S. on the OTAs. The airlines had their own sites. And, you know, there, there wasn't that much perceived market need for a site like Kayak. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's get the Paul English thing out the way then. So how did you meet Paul? What did you make of him? And what do you think he made of you? <laughs> because yeah, no, I think it's, I, I say respectfully that you're fairly different personalities, at least outwardly. 
Ah, uh, yeah, we're we're very different folks, and I, and I would observe that um, a lot of great companies have co-founders because they're complementary. You know, no one person can do it all, and and all the all the areas that where I suck, Paul is great at, and and that's what made it work, right? So I I, I can't write a line of code, or at least I couldn't then. Um, so Paul was my CTO, he was my co-founder, he was my thought partner, et cetera. Uh, but going back to your original question, how did I meet him? Well, I had this short PowerPoint deck, uh, but I had a problem, which is I couldn't code. And I had agreed when I left Orbitz not to take any of their people with me, uh, <laughs> at least for a year. After a year, I went back and got them all. But so uh, I was talking to Joel Cutler and Terry, and Joel said, well, I, I know this great programmer in Boston who has started a few companies and sold it successfully, maybe he can point you the right direction. So I met Paul at Legal Seafood in, in, um, in the basement of the General Callis offices in, in Harvard Square and had lunch and walking through the idea and 15 minutes into it, he's like, let's do this together. And we agreed to, uh, to, to co-found it. We both agreed to put in a couple million dollars each. And we went upstairs to Joel Cutler and said, hey, Joel, you know that, six million dollar pre-money valuation you were giving us now it's 12 and a half <laughs> and, uh if you don't like it we're gonna go shop the deal and i i think joe at that point in time is like oh shit um well you know they de-risk the deal he's got a cto now and we've got more capital because they're both putting money into it so you know I'll, I'll swallow my lumps and go for it so it was a it was a very expensive lunch for joel cutler but a very productive one for kayak what what's interesting is you said something there. Uh, you said you didn't know how to program at all. And there's a lot of people, since a lot of our uh, listeners are uh, potential startup founders who don't know how to program and sometimes can come across as the quote unquote ideas guy uh, searching for a coder. But you also paid your dues at Orbitz. You also had all this background and uh, knew Joel Cutler, knew all these different people. I'm curious how you would recommend to other potential startup founders, uh, you know, about the the route you took versus maybe. Uh, versus, you know, the other route of just kind of saying, screw it, I'm right out of college, I'm starting something. It all depends on your appetite for risk, right? So I, I didn't have a, a huge appetite for risk. I was married and had a couple of kids. So I wanted to make sure if I was going to leave one startup orbits for another kayak, that I was maximizing the chance of that startup being successful. So, and I, I think there's no substitute for experience in terms of helping you be successful. And then uh, there's no substitute for having complimentary team members who know parts of the business that you don't or have capabilities you don't, whether that's financial or marketing or how to raise money or how to write code. So, you know, I, I was just trying to maximize my chances for success. And it's, it's one thing to start a business coming out of school when you really don't know that much, but you have an idea, but you also don't have a mortgage or kids. So if you fail, you can go get a job somewhere else. It's quite another to say, I'm, I'm going to start something and, and I'm going to be successful at it because I need to be successful at it. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I was. Yeah, there's definitely sometimes a stereotype of everyone has to do the Mark Zuckerberg thing. And uh, there's, uh, there's a, a whole bunch of different ways of, of skinning a cat. So, um, cool. Well, I, I'd, be, I'd love to just delve a little bit more into... Uh, how you, we, we kind of alluded to it generally uh, about how execution. And I feel like that's a, a term that's just thrown around generally and often not really explained uh, exactly how you executed. Uh, and so I'd be curious to kind of like, you know, there were, there was Mobisumo, Fairchase, obviously you mentioned Sidestep. 
there was a bunch of different, you know, uh, options out there. Uh, you mentioned the, you know, kind of the insight you had that you felt sidestep and maybe didn't. Um, how did you, what, what was your North store when it came, uh, North star, excuse me, when it came to strategy and execution that you felt you understood that everyone else didn't really get? Sure. It comes down to a handful of very straightforward things, but are very hard to, to practice consistently over time. The first one is it's all about the product, right? Any time we had a, a trade-off to make, we always erred on the side of the customer and the product. And, and we built a product that we wanted to use, right? Fast, advanced, cool filters. If a supplier didn't agree to pay us, we'd include the results anyway. So we err on the side of comprehensiveness. Uh, at that point in time, we had a very light touch on, on, on commercialization, like ads and pop-ups and all that kind of crap. Uh, so it was, it was not too dissimilar from when Google emerged on the scene and there was lots of other travel ser or search engines out there. They just out-executed them with a discipline on consumer and customer first and product first. So that's, a, that's the first part. The second part is I wanted to make sure that we were very partnership-oriented. So we went out and did deals with everybody. Anybody who came to us with an idea, be, it, be that a distribution partner or an airline or a marketing partner, we were open for business. And we moved very quickly with, to, to partner with them. We did everything on win-win terms. And uh, you know, everything, if it didn't work out, they could get out on 30 days notice. So we did business the way people wanted to do business. And then the last aspect was, we, I, I knew we'd need a lot of capital to win, you know, we might have to outshout people. We might want to do M and A and buy them and push for scale. So I wanted to be the best at raising money, and and we were, you know, we were absolutely the best at taking capital in the marketplace, and we were willing to give up significant pieces of our company to to do so. And and I still think that's a strategy that a lot of startups miss. You know, they'd rather own the whole grape than part of the watermelon, as the <laughs> uh, as the jargon goes. I'm 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 much more a a piece of the watermelon kind of fellow. It's interesting, Steve. I can j jump in before uh, uh, David carries on. You said right at the beginning there, you used to err on the side of the customer and the products. That's when right. You were growing rather than erring on the side of what makes money potentially. How did you square that with your early investors if they saw you always going on the side of the customer and the product, which is obviously was the right thing to do, but they'd invested in you, right? They had invested in us, but you know, you're not trying to make money on your first 5,000 users. You're trying to make money on your first 50 million users was the way we always talked about it. And we were also very fortunate early on to have Mike Moritz on our, join our board from Sequoia Capital. Okay. And there's this bias um, of East Coast uh, venture capitalists at that time to focus on monetization and P&L and making money. And the bias was the exact opposite on the West Coast at the time, which was go for maximum audience growth and scale, and then you'll figure out how to monetize it later. So we had a perfect balance between the two uh, with, you know, General Catalyst on one side out of Boston and Sequoia Capital out of uh, Menlo Park to, to thread the needle there. It's a delicate balancing act almost. It, it is. It's funny. We uh, Sequoia came in and invested in us at the same time they invested in this other company called YouTube. And uh, I was I was talking to um, <laughs> Chad Hurley, who's you know one of, one of the co-founders of, of YouTube, and and uh, we were both coming out of Sequoia board meetings. And he's like, "Wow, you know, Mike Morris was just beating the shit out of me about our P and L and how much money we're losing." 
And I said, wow, that's funny. He was just telling me that I should be less focused on making money and more about audience growth. <laughs> so, you know, I, it, it, it all worked out, but it, but it is funny how the, um, you know, putting customer first, which is what YouTube did, uh, more successfully, I'd say, than, than we did, certainly. Uh, but they, they broke out of a pack of a ton of video sharing sites. Uh, and we broke out of a ton of search sites. Yeah. So I think, the, I think the philosophy makes sense. I'm sure there's a joke there about somewhere about them uh, YouTube selling to Google and you didn't, but I obviously won't. I, I, I won't make it. Yeah, he sold for well, more it, though. So, <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's it's funny. We had a healthy competition with those guys, and, and after they sold, uh, Paul and I said we're never selling for less than what YouTube sold for. um so yeah i think i want to rewind and uh ask a little about what your fundraising comment um one thing we've talked about is you know the difference between uber lyft and sidecar really is uh you know who was best at fundraising and pitching that narrative and i think there's a um there's a strain of thought that says as long as you have a good product and bootstrap that's it um, but in many in many cases, that's not true. And it sounds like you're on the other side of that spectrum. And I would love if you could elaborate a little bit more about how, you know, competence in fundraising and being the best at raising money really uh, guaranteed your guys' success. Yeah, for sure. Because, look, all things being equal, if you have a great idea, other people are going to have an idea too. And there's probably going to be a stage of your development where your product may be largely comparable to somebody else's. And And, you know, that's when you want to have the, the bank role and the strategic investors behind you to actually outspend and outmuscle that competitor. So I think fundraising is just one of those um, skills that you need to have um, to be a really successful entrepreneur if you're operating in a competitive, crowded marketplace. Right. Now, yeah, I, I've, I think we've I uh, had a, a fair amount of varying viewpoints on that. So it's um, <laughs> it, you use some of that funds to acquire sidestep. So I kind of wanted to uh, segue into how did you guys think about uh, once you guys did raise those funds? Um, apparently, it wasn't just a browser extension. It was going to be somewhat valuable to you guys. I'd love to hear a little bit about that, too. Sure. So um, sidestep. So sidestep was a San Francisco darling. Most people uh, who are listening to this podcasts have never heard of sidestep but um it it had a a decent amount of market traction it was still mainly a, a plug-in they had uh after kayak had launched they had tried to retrofit what they were doing to be a website too and they had a fair bit of audience against it but uh you know paul and i looked at uh the math and said look we can go out there and we can spend money to convince sidestep users to use kayak instead because it's a better product and this is how much it's going to cost us to actually find sidestep users and convert them to kayak users. And then we said, or we could just buy them. And we, could, we knew we could raise money. Um, and we could raise that in a much more attractive valuation and gain both scale, um, eliminate a competitor, get, you know. So it, 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 it just all worked out. So, you know, it was at the time we bought them, we were 33 people at kayak doing 50 million in revenue. They were 105 people doing 30 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we just knew we had a business, better business model. We raised a couple hundred million bucks and we got the deal done in three weeks. 
Well, uh, it's funny because there's a few examples like this, you know, class pass. And I think I forget who their uh, competitor was DD. And I think it was quite quite dash. And then uh, there's a few big examples of this. Uh, the biggest, most famous one, of course, is like X and PayPal. Right. Um, yeah. I've always thought whenever I heard those stories that it must take it must be a little bit of a gut punch to to merge and to give up even more of, of your company. And uh, like and to, and to perhaps um, seed that battleground like people a lot of founders have a lot of pride right they want to win and I, I how did you feel like just you know not the logic you, you answered the question extremely logically like and how did you feel about it I'm curious well I mean to some extent we figured if we had waited two more years we could have gotten them for far cheaper and so you know we were holding our nose a little bit buying it because we knew we were going to shut it down and we didn't need their people right so you know a couple Actually, it was a week before Christmas when we got the deal done. We went to their offices and basically took out their whole staff. And then three months later, we redirected the URL to Kayak. So it was, it was, it was. I don't want to say it's brutal, but it was a, it was a fairly short transition from size stuff to, to Kayak. Um, I, I don't mind the fact that we probably overpaid for them and we did it too early because it, it, it gave us scale so quickly in the market and that allowed us to, to, to build the momentum to, you know, the U.S. basically then on the meta market, we owned. And now they gave us the permission to springboard the U.S. to um, international markets. It's funny, you said something there, like you own the U.S. meta market. And I know that, I want to segue this a little bit. You currently lead seven different brands uh, at Booking Holdings. Uh, one of which is Momondo, uh, one of which is Open Table. I remember hearing stories about how uh, Momondo really focused on Denmark and a couple other uh, places, uh, carved out a niche in, if I remember correctly, TV advertising. And uh, there was a bunch of uh, different uh, regional plays that had, like, I know Kayak ha, you know, has uh, made attempts at uh, going to Europe. I actually don't know this, uh, the full success of how successful you guys were as a kayak brand, but to some extent, if you acquired Momondo, right, that was, uh, you, you recognize they did something well in their region. Uh, can you talk about how you view the difference between MetaSearch in different countries and why did you guys decide to acquire these other companies? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a long history of, particularly in Europe and now in APAC, um, savvy people seeing what's working in the US and deciding to replicate that on a local basis. And the meta search market was no different. So as soon as we started kayak, we started getting some traction. Um, there were meta search sites opening up in Scandinavia, like Momondo, in the UK, like Cheap Flights, in Germany, like Swoodoo, and Austria, like Czech Felix. These are all brands that we ended up acquiring. And, and what was um, underlying their development was they had local market expertise. They knew how to acquire customers. They plugged in local suppliers and local OTAs, sorry, online travel agencies. And they got traction in those markets. And we, we had to do the same calculus when we looked at them as, as when we looked at Sidestep, which is, okay, do I wanna go in these markets and, and compete with them and give people, convince people through marketing and product experience that they should be using Kayak instead of Momondo or instead of Swoodoo? Or do I just want to reach an accommodation with these folks on the financial side, on the M&A side, and then figure out a, a good way to operate them? And, and that's where we ended up with each of these, which is the first one we bought was Swoodoo, then we bought Czech Felix in Austria, then we ended up buying Momondo and Cheap Flights together. We bought Mundi down in Brazil, 
hotels combined out of, out of uh, Sydney for the APAC market. And what we did was a little bit more nuanced than what we did with Sidestep, which is we kept their brands, we kept their look and feel, we just made them a storefront uh, sitting on front of the back end kayak infrastructure. So it was the same search infrastructure, the same uh, distribution. It was just basically a different flavor of ice cream that we were selling out of the, uh, out of the ice cream manufacturing. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing about that, the acquisitions in Europe, is that you did try to go in with your own brand of ice cream before. I, I remember the very um, Keith Melnick was the first kayak person that I ever met in 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 London in two thousand and you're going to tell me the year two thousand and seven maybe something like that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good memory, Kevin. And um, Keith was bringing kayak to Europe. So, what lessons did you learn? Because you tried to bring the you know you tried to launch the brands. I mean, you had a fairly hefty competitor in. Um, would have been travel supermarket back in those days and Skyscanner. But I mean, yeah, you know, I can see you yeah, smiling. Yeah. We all remember travel supermarket. But I mean, the point is, is that you did try to bring the kayak brand in first and then perhaps realized it was going to be more difficult than if you did go and buy Swoodoo and some of the others. Yeah, so the, the, the first stage in, in all these markets is, is we localized kayak and we brought kayak to those markets. Um, but Developing the product and the commercial relationships wasn't the hard part. The hard part was getting marketing traction with consumers. Yeah. And consumers are, are, habit, are habitual. So once they've started using a MetaSearch site, you've got to give them a really darn good excuse to switch. And the reality is, Momondo did a good job serving uh, Scandinavian needs. Swoodoo did a good job serving German needs. Um, so the, the barrier for us to switch those folks over to Kayak was, was going to be expensive. Not to say that kayak wasn't getting traction in those markets, it, it is. You know, in, in Germany, we operate with kayak, Swoodoo, and Momondo as three different meta brands. Uh, and, and all of them have, you know, big audiences. But, um, but you know, there's, we, we knew the formula of pursuing scale, even if it had came at the expense of a little bit of M&A and writing checks was the right strategy. And, you know, you fast forward to today, you know, this year, well, in the past 12 months, we did 6 billion consumer queries for travel information across these seven brands globally. So scale matters. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get on to some of the, the, the latter parts of that period leading up to the IPO and the acquisition and things, I mean, that period did coincide with um, the entry, if we can call it that, of Google. They bought ITA software and um, um, you were a, a, a very vocal inevitably <laughs> executive commenting on that deal. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one of the, um, uh, what was the, what was the lobbying group? Um, Fair Search. I think you were involved in Fair Search. I mean, was that potentially the first time that you thought, okay, this isn't perhaps not going all our way possibly because up until then, certainly in North America, you had it all your own way, really there was very little coming along to bite you on the backside, but then all of a sudden Google was getting in on the game. And I, I just wonder whether that was the first time you just thought, uh. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we always knew Google was going to be the space, you know, all, all of our pitch decks as we raised money, you know, the first question we get asked in the Q and a was, well, what about Google? And, you know, we always said, look, Google's always going to chase us. Uh, they're always going to be two or three steps behind us but they do have the benefit of global scale, of vertical breadth, and of having a free audience 
uh, unlimited engineering wherewithal and, and great access to, to capital. So, you know, if, if, if travel meta was going to be one of their top three priorities, um, they could, they could put a, a hurting on us, but we didn't have to beat Google to win, you know, ultimately kayak and the other brands, we have a great business that, that performs solidly, even if Google is strong in the marketplace. So Google for us was, was always a company that we did a lot of business with that we had a lot of respect for, but not one that we looked for for product inspiration or innovation. <laughs> We've always been ahead of them, you know, yeah. and, and today is no different. And their, their growth in the U.S. market, which I think is the one where they've got the most share, hasn't come at our expense. It's come at the expense of people going directly to airlines and directly to OTAs. Yeah. People yeah, are still going to kayak. I, I, I remember you saying at a Q&A or something or a word association round at a Focusrite conference, someone said to you, Google, and you said something similar. So we don't look at it for product inspiration, but it is shit lightning fast or something like that i think that was how you summarized it back in those early days yeah no the product is fast um but that's because google has to be fast it's actually their achilles heel yeah. you know people expect google to deliver you instant results and the, and the only way can, they can do that is to to not wait for slow suppliers to give them cheaper fares mm -hmm. yep. so kind of like, you know if you're if you're willing to wait three seconds or so you'll get better <laughs> a better answer with kayak than you will for google and i I think when you open your wallet and you're about to make a $700 airfare purchase, uh, it, it pays to wait three seconds. That's a really interesting insight that their brand is all about being quick and that actually could be kind of, uh, you know, harmful to them. Uh, I was, what I wanted to ask actually is about uh, like vertical marketplaces versus horizontal marketplaces. Uh, clearly like a lot of people point to, you know, Amazon snatching up diapers.com and a lot of stuff like that. And eventually you couldn't, you couldn't actually exist as a Zappos uh, because they just had such market power. Uh, it's clear that you don't believe that's going to happen in the travel industry. Why do you think the travel industry is kind of inoculated from that? Well, it hasn't happened in the travel industry yet, right? Um, and I, I think the reality is uh, the travel, um, let's call it in the U.S. 10, 12% of GDP. So it's a really big category. And as a result, it's not going to be a winner take all. You know, you're going to have successful breadth players like Google. You're going to have successful vertical players like Kayak. And then even within that, if you're a supplier uh, or an OTA, you can actually do a good job with a much smaller business. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it's the, the game is still rapidly evolving <laughs> on, on this front. Uh, so I, I wouldn't pick today and say this is the, the end state. You know, the end state may well be that a, a horizontal player wins. But, uh, but, I, but I still think it's going to be a healthy environment for everybody else. And I'm, okay. I'm very intent on making sure that Kayak is, is one of the winners. Okay, uh, I've got two, two points I wanted to kind of finish up with, Steve, if that's okay. Um, I'm sure someone will correct me. We always have uh, wisecracks telling us when we've got things wrong. But I believe you're one of the longest serving digital travel CEOs now, if not the most longest serving one. I mean, the, the question that I, I often comes to mind is, you know, why do you stick around on something that's about product and brand versus something that's uh, to go and do something that's perhaps new and fresh and challenges your brain in a different way to the way it's perhaps being challenged now by running a company that you know inside out? For the last 15 years or whatever 
Yeah, because I've done a really shitty job making kayak what it should be, you know, and, and uh, you know, we, we started out trying to make a, an app that gave you a complete picture of all your travel options worldwide, made it easier to travel, um, did all these cool things for you, and we're not there yet. You know, I've been at it for 15 years, and we're still not there yet. So, uh, you know, until I run out of gas on the, on the product and inspiration side, there's no other place I want to be. And, and yeah, I'm, I've, I've been here for a long period of time, but since I've been here, there have been so many changes in the industry, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when I, when I started Orbitz, we were still printing paper tickets, right? I, you know, most of your audience probably has never even seen a paper ticket. <laughs> and, so, and then we went to electronic tickets, and then we went from like web fairs via email to actually access the internet. And then we made a transition to, to mobile and then to apps. And now, you know, maybe the super apps. We'll see. But um, no, we, we have a lot of stuff to get done at Kayak and our other travel meta brands and at Open Table and across the group. And I'm having a heck of a lot of fun. And there's no place I'd rather be. Okay, that's that's encouraging for hopefully encouraging for all your employees. I mean, this kind of leads me to the, the final point. And I think it'd be I think it's fair to say that you've got a fairly in the public arena. You know, people see you on stage at conferences and things like that, and they'll hear you on this. You've got a fairly combative kind of personality in some respects. You know, you, you, you kind of shoot from the hip, if that's the phrase I need to use, and, and stuff like that, which is very different to other, you know, as a journalist, we love it because you're, you know, it's Mr. Soundbite. Here comes Steve Hafner. It's great. But it's your kind of, as I say, is your combative public persona the way you are? with your team and in the office, or is it kind of a, I'm not going to say it's just for show, but I've just wondered if the, what is the, the, the Steve in the office like compared to the Steve that we see on stage? I would hope people would tell you it's the same. You know, I, I don't perceive myself as combative. I, I, I see myself as direct. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you the way I think it is. Yep. And I'm going to try to solicit as much input to, to make sure that what I'm telling you is actually true and accurate. Yep. And, you know, I, I, I think we're on to the right track at, at, at Kayak and, and innovation and, and, uh, and products is what we care about and we care about making an impact. And I've just been fortunate to work with a lot of really talented people uh, through the years that we've been able to make a difference. And, you know, I, I, I speak at your events because I, I love you, Kevin, and I love Focusrite, and I don't speak at many other stuff. But but while I'm there talking to people in the industry, it's it's fun to throw an elbow or two occasionally. Oh, there there are no complaints. And, yeah. and the industry needs it. <laughs> oh, there are no complaints from me and my comrades on the journalist side and at Focus Right. That's for sure. I mean, I always I always remember shortly after the acquisition. Um, I think it was a couple of days after the acquisition. You were on stage with Jeff Boyd, and you know it had happened the day before or something, and you just couldn't you couldn't see two contrasting types of leaders of businesses yeah, in a sure. complementary way. I mean, what was it like working with somebody like Jeff Boyd, who I think you ask anybody and they say he was very presidential and, you know, he could have been an ambassador to the UN. He had that kind of style. I wondered whether, you know, well, how it, what it was like working with someone like Jeff. You know, Jeff is um, one of my mentors. I, I really look up to him as well as my current CEO, uh, Glenn Fogel. You know, he's, he's much more adept than I am at, at um, being situational aware and, and adjusting his deportment to the situation. Okay. I think that's probably a, a, gr a great point to end on. So uh, thank you very much uh, from David and I, Steve Hafner, for joining us thank on you, How Kevin. I Got Here. Thanks, David.
Okay. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. You've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. This is uh, Mozio and Focuswise, uh, weekly inside stories around travel and transportation and innovation. We thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Steve uh, Athner from Kayak and uh, tune in for another episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.